Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Kerwin, and on today's episode, I have Amber O'Hearn. Amber is a data scientist by profession, but she has been researching and experimenting with a ketogenic and evolution-based diet since 1997. She has eaten almost nothing else except meat since 2009. Hi, Amber. Thanks so much for coming on to today. Hi, thank you for having me. No problem. So I've had another person on the show, Dr. Sean Baker, and he's a, a carnivore diet advocate. So but he's going to only be doing it a year. You've been doing it way longer than that. And so I thought I'd, I really would like to get a perspective of someone who's been eating predominantly meat for so many years. What A um, couple of the questions. So I'm so glad I got you on today. Um, I guess first one up is um, what terminology do you like to use? Because now some people say zero carb. Some people say all meat. Some people say carnivore. What Do you have a certain preference that... Um, Yes. Historically, from the way this movement developed, from my point of view, it was originally called zero carb. But that term is just so misleading because there are things that people on this diet would eat that aren't zero carb, such as eggs or shellfish or liver or even some milk products. But there are other things that are zero carb that I would never eat, such as plant oils or things that all the carbohydrates in fiber, for example. So I strongly prefer the word carnivorous, even though it's longer to write. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good. So I'll I'll be using that term too. So I'll make sure that uh, I don't upset you by maybe throwing in the wrong term. Uh, So if I just do a little bit of history first so people can get to know you. Back in 1997, you said that um, you you went on this exploration with diets. What was what was the point? What was sort of like the inspiration back then for you? It was completely inspired by having weight issues, actually. So I had been gaining weight since, I guess, since I was 20, which would have been 1993. And I had been brought up on a mostly vegetarian diet, actually. And most of my understanding about what was appropriate as a human diet was from that vegetarian point of view. And so when I started having weight issues, I got more serious about vegetarianism. I I went back to it because I had been not really particularly vegetarian over the previous few years. And I even tried veganism, but none of that helped with my weight. And I was increasingly frustrated. It happened that I had been studying Russian And I went to study for a semester in St. Petersburg. And I was vegan when I left, but it was just so difficult to eat as a vegan in St. Petersburg at the time. I I probably would have had to live off of pasta (laughs) for a lot of the time. Um, And so I thought, well, while I'm here, I'll just eat what the people here eat. And when I go home, I'll get back to my diet and focus on that again, because I was there to learn the language. So I found when I got home that I actually was less fat than when I left. And for some reason, that experience made me reconsider all of the ideas that 
my dietary theories or hypotheses at the time were based on in a way that I hadn't before. In fact, I'd heard of a low-carb diet before. And when I read what it was, I thought it was the stupidest, most obviously wrong thing I'd ever heard and just dismissed it immediately. But having heard of it, I suddenly thought, well, I wonder if there really is something to that. And I went looking for information on it. And it just so happened that the Eads had just published Protein Power. And so I found that book and I I read that book and I went to the library and looked at many of the papers they cited. And then the proof was in the pudding. So I tried it and it worked and resolved the weight issues that I had. So that's where my journey began. Okay. So your main, ins- your main inspiration was that the, the protein um, book by Dr. Eads, the, the two Eads, aren't they? Yeah. And, yes. Um, so then, but then this was back in 97. Then I guess you sort of drifted off a little bit again, did you, from the protein until I guess 2009 was when you say that you've started eating predominantly all meat. Was there again another point there that made you go, right, let me, let me ditch anything else except meat? There was, but it was, it was a gradual, it was a gradual process because I did stay low carb all of that time. I might have gone off a few times for short periods, but I basically ate a low carb diet and continued to research. I was excited about the papers that were coming out very slowly about the benefits that could be had from a low carb diet and advocated it to my friends. But nonetheless, my own weight was losing ground. I was getting fatter. And part of it was. Well, it started with pregnancies, actually. I think I didn't, I I might say I was unable or I chose not to stay low carb during my pregnancies. And I gained a lot of fat. And then when I would go back on a low carb diet after the children were born, I just never got back to that same level of, of leanness that I was initially. And then over the years, my weight was actually gradually increasing. So a few times I thought, well, why am I even doing this if it's not even getting me to the weight where I want to be? And I would stop, but I would immediately gain a lot of weight. And so I found that it was the best tool that I had to achieve the best leanness that I could get, but I wasn't satisfied with that level. And in fact, by 2009, or by the end of 2008, I was almost 200 pounds I'm five foot six. And I was just really, I felt desperate about my weight. It was all, it was all vanity based. It's not that I didn't have other health issues. In fact, I suffered from depression, but I didn't have any health issues that I thought were related to diet. So I always had my eye out for ways that I could improve from that point. Mm -hmm. And that's when I, when I read about some people on the internet eating only meat. And a lot of them were reporting that they had the same background as I did, that they had come from a very low carb diet and the very low carb diet was good for them, but it just wasn't getting them all the way to where they wanted to be. And I thought, well, I could try that and maybe it would just make me lose lose the weight and then I'll go back to my regular low carb diet and maintain it. So that's that was the inspiration to try it. Okay. And I guess this is already leading us on to the great pivot point because 
right now, um, especially after Dr. Sean Baker was on the Joe Rogan podcast, I mean, the interest in the carnivore diet has only gone up. And oh, it's exploded. Yeah, <laughs> he's done very well um, to, to promote it. And so, but now what I'm seeing in the community is we're getting people coming from low carb and people coming from a ketogenic background, you know, and also your standard American diets potentially. But yeah, I'd love to hear your views now on, um, so you haven't done low carb and even have you, you've tried a ketogenic diet, have you? Yes. Um, I guess I started with low carb when I started, people didn't really talk about ketogenic and, and we certainly didn't have the home tools that we now have to measure ketosis. We had urine strips, but as, as many people know, as they adapt to the diet, the, those aren't don't have the sensitivity you might want as uh, measuring beta-hydroxybutyrate in the blood would show. Mm -hmm. But basically, people would just judge whether they were doing it right by the, the level of carbohydrates and to some extent, maybe the level of protein, but that was less of an emphasis. So I would say that most of the time that I was doing a low-carb diet, I was actually in ketosis and I would speak about them roughly equivalently, although I know that there are differences in philosophy. The, the keto diet has, it's defined by the level of ketosis that you've achieved. And that level is somewhat arbitrary, but there are motivations for it. Dr. Finney has said that, yes, it's arbitrary, but we're basing it basically on when we start to see therapeutic results. And that's where the 0.5 to 1.5 sort of beginning level of ketosis is. And so that means that a ketogenic diet, like a low-carb diet, is really based on macronutrients because you, you manipulate your macronutrients until you get to the level of ketosis that you're trying to hit. And that means there's a huge variety of different diets that can be ketogenic, right? You could be you could be vegan and you could be on a ketogenic diet, or you could be a carnivore. And the the different kinds of sources of fat that you could get could be completely different. The sources of protein could be completely different, and it's all it's all centered around this single measurement. And sometimes that can be good especially if the level of ketosis is important for some kind of therapy that you're after. But it can also become a goal in itself, and I sometimes question the wisdom of that. So, for example, if, you, if your goal is weight loss or if your goal is um, cognitive performance, there might be some correlation between the level of beta-hydroxybutyrate in your blood and those end goals, but it might not be a very tight linear fit. Um, one way to judge how important that is is to think about taking exogenous ketones. If you take exogenous ketones, you might get a very high level in the blood, but it may have nothing to do with how much weight loss you're seeing. Mm -hmm. Or it may correspond to some degree with how much seizure control you're getting, but it it might also be affected by what you're eating in addition to those exogenous ketones. Um, 
Finney likes to call it a well-formulated ketogenic diet. You've probably heard that phrase mm-hmm. to talk about this difference between a diet that's ketogenic just by virtue of how much beta hydroxybutyrates in your blood, which could be totally fasted. And he's not, <laughs> he, he uh, has pretty strong views against long-term fasting of more than about a day or so. That would be very ketogenic, but it wouldn't be very well formulated because he wouldn't get the nutrients that you want. So analogies are always imperfect, but we could make a kind of analogous setup of what a carnivorous diet is. So you could say a carnivorous diet is defined by the level of plant matter that's making up your diet. So it's it can be kind of arbitrary because, well, for example, I drink coffee and that's obviously not carnivorous. Mm-hmm. But I'm willing to call myself a carnivore, even though I have that contribution to my diet from plants. So like with the ketone level, you might say there's a kind of minimum amount of carnivory that you would use to call yourself carnivorous. But the line's a little bit fuzzy, and the benefits may or may not have to do with the exact level of plant restriction that you're using, and it may vary from person to person. So certain types of plants that people who are consider themselves carnivores might include, some people would even say if they eat a little mayonnaise now and then, they're still carnivorous, or if they have spices and sauces on their food, they're still carnivorous. Um, Alcohol is a whole other question. But basically, a carnivorous diet tries to minimize those contributions as much as possible. And again, like in the ketosis, in the ketogenic diet, the real goal is your outcome. It's not, nobody has as a health health goal to have high ketosis, right? And I don't think anybody has as a health goal to not eat plants. What people have when they're trying a carnivorous diet usually is some goal like Maybe it is weight loss, but a lot of people are seeing improvements in things like autoimmune disorders or mood, which is the case with me. I didn't give the the reveal there when I told my story, but when I tried a carnivorous diet, what happened to me was that my mood disorder disappeared very quickly within a matter of weeks. And that's why I continue to eat a carnivorous diet, not because I think that plants are bad or that, um, I don't know, I have some outside judge value judgment about eating plants, but just because they give me this diet gives me superior health to the diet I was eating before. Yeah. That was a bigger end goal that you noticed and you and you, and you could see that you could control it with the food that you ate. I mean, I mean, that is amazing within a few weeks that you noticed your, your mood changed dramatically because were you, with those mood disorders, then were you on any medication at that stage? I was. So I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder at 20. And that was before I was on a low-carb diet. And I did see mood improvements on a low-carb diet. I could even see that it it almost felt like the less carb I ate, the better my mood was. But even at a very low-carb levels, it was never completely controlled. I still suffered serious 
bouts of depression. And then in my early 30s, I was re-diagnosed as having bipolar disorder type 2, which is like manic depression, except there's no mania, which on the face of it sounds kind of silly because if there's no mania, then it's just depression, right? Mm -hmm. But you do have these sort of hypomanic episodes, which for me were only just a couple, and I think they may have been actually uh, triggered by antidepressants themselves. But I was very excited to get this new diagnosis, actually, even though bipolar disorder sounds in some way much more serious. I thought, well, maybe now I'll get a better treatment because the drugs that I was getting before just weren't the right ones. And so I, I spent over a year trying different bipolar medications and they none of them really helped my disorder and they all had terrible side effects and it was it was a living nightmare the disease itself was progressing and it it was just a big struggle and i haven't been on any medications since 2009 that's that's amazing to think yeah you were at medication stage and it, it, this is what I'm trying to get, get across to people listening to this, that just by using your, your diet, and in this case, a carnivorous diet, you were able to wean yourself off medication and stay stable. That's, it just shows how powerful food is. It really is kind of mind-blowing. <laughs> I, I, take, I take it for granted now, oftentimes, just what it's just having normal moods i have moods <laughs> i have bad days and good days so you're still human thing like <laughs> it turns out yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay so um so already the one benefit here that people can listen to is that you found that eating a carnivorous diet uh, really did help your um your psychology your brain health so it, I mean, the, I always have it as a goal here that um, any information, I try to get it out to see if some people could use that to make up their own minds if they want to take action today. And maybe that's already something where if someone feels they've got some sort of mood disorder, hey, why not try a carnivorous diet for 30 days and see how it affects you in some way? Um, the thing is, it's really safe to try. It's not like trying out some experimental medication. Yeah. That's the thing I love about it. And you know, coming back to our, um, what we were talking about earlier with that difference between a carnivorous diet, a low-carb diet, and a ketogenic diet, um, people, I, you know, it's definitely in the last few years, people are, are very um, drummed into about their macros. So they're all about how many, you know, percentage of fat versus percentage protein versus percentage carb and, you know, trying to play with this macro thing that I don't quite think anyone truly understands sometimes it's quite hard to gauge like what your percentage macros are unless you're a dietitian or you you, you under, truly understand food but um but that's what's so easy with a carnivorous diet there are no macros there's none of this um trying to figure out something out it's just eat until you feel full and right you just need to do that um so that's that's probably another big difference with the diet would you say is that yeah not, none of this macro stuff um, just eat until you're full. And also, I like that idea that you said where the ketogenic diet, they, it is predominantly about what's this ketone level. And so people are doing blood, you know, blood or breath or urine testing to try and gauge the ketosis levels. But <laughs> with a carnivorous diet, it's just like, so how, so how much plant do you eat? You know, so it's, it's, <laughs> can you imagine this thing? You know, so is it three peas, four peas? You know, uh, 
<laughs> maybe, maybe you know, if we come to the coffee thing, I hope not because, um, yeah, I'm, I'm doing a carnivorous diet experiment this month and I still drink coffee. So I'm like, you know, so maybe you can do four coffees, but five coffees maybe tips you into non-carnivorous. I don't know. So. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, any other big differences that you would say from um, outcomes for someone who's in this stage now where – I would say predominantly most people who go ketogenic or low carb diet are it is for weight management. You know, it's not for epileptic seizures or other or cancer treatment or something. That's a minority of the diets in the general population. I think now most people have, have attempted it because they want, they're trying to look leaner, they're trying to look fitter, and just manage their weight better. Do you think you found you personally found a difference going choosing between the two? And I'm just trying to maybe see if there's any more information you could share with someone who's in that stage. If they're keto, should they try carnivorous? Yes. Uh, before I do, though, I wanted to say something about those macro levels. Although there isn't a, a target macro level to hit or a level of protein that you're trying to avoid staying under, I think that people who don't eat fatty enough meat tend to not feel good. You need to be selecting fatty cuts, or I think you're going to run into energy problems. Okay. On the other hand, I, I wouldn't want to make too much of it. There's, <laughs> I call them the protein wars. There's so much controversy now just within even the ketogenic community about how much protein is acceptable and how important ketone levels are, whether even just for the simple goal of fat loss... Um, some people are adamant that you have to restrict protein and keep your fat levels high. And some people are equally adamant that the higher the level of protein, the better weight loss results you're going to get. And you're right that carnivory doesn't have strong mandates about that, but it does. It The culture definitely is that you should be eating until you're satiated and not trying to restrict food. And I think that can be really refreshing for people who have been struggling to try to reach certain levels of ketosis um, to sometimes the detriment of their nutrition, especially women, um, because I think at least, at least what I'm seeing, I don't know, maybe men have a similar problem, but I often see women struggling with trying not to eat a lot because they really want to achieve this um, fat loss look and they want to achieve certain ketone levels to attain that. And they're just not supporting the demand that especially a woman of reproductive age, their body is requiring. Yeah. So about what kind of results that people seem to be getting. I wish we had clinical trials. And so all of this is hypothesis, stage, observation level. But things that I've seen again and again in reading forums over the last uh, eight years, I guess, um, that have been surprising are autoimmune issues such as arthritis and asthma or autoimmune looking things like Lyme disease or lupus, um, skin problems. And then, of course, digestive issues, because meat is very easy to digest. <laughs> Contrary to some common ideas, 
plants are actually not very easy to digest with all that fiber. It's difficult on our intestines, which really, we really have a lot less of the kind of intestine uh, that our primate relatives and other herbivores have. We just don't have a lot of capacity for fiber. And so people who are suffering from, for example, um, irritable bowel diseases like Crohn's disease and colitis often are getting a lot of relief from a carnivorous diet just by removing all that irritable, ir irritating residue from their diets. Yeah. And so. Yeah, because for me, that's what got me thinking when I was eating this, that how in a way a carnivorous diet is very, is a very basic elimination diet. So you just eliminate everything except meat and you sort of put yourself at that base. And then that's where I've heard certain people say, well, you know, if you want, maybe try introduce one item now and then see how your body responds. And that's so if you wanted to sort of test your own body to different food states, you could use the carnivorous diet as a base. And once you're stable, then you, if you wanted to introduce vegetables, you'd actually be able to see, oh, actually I do, my body does or doesn't respond well to that particular type. Yes. I think of it in much the same way. Yeah. I, I don't think there's necessarily any reason to avoid eating a plant if you show no symptoms of ill response to it. Mm -hmm. In the ketogenic world, you might think of a variety of conditions that people are using for ketosis for that you get immediate feedback on like athletic performance, cognitive performance, epilepsy, weight. And then there are people who are just doing it because there's research that leads them to believe it might be good for longevity. Hmm. But you can't tell. I can't tell today if having been on a, a having high levels of ketone in my blood for the last year has contributed to my longevity or not. I just can't tell. And maybe it's still worth doing for that, but I wouldn't think less of anybody for not going on a ketogenic diet if they're getting no benefit that they can see except for this theoretical benefit of increased longevity. And so similarly, I, I would not think less of anyone not uh, who's tried a carnivorous diet and added back some plant and saw no detriment to their health just for some theoretical benefit that someone might envision about eating a carnivorous diet. I, in a certain sense, I'm, I'm really a pragmatist about it. On the other hand, I do think that when people eliminate plants from their diet and give it a fair chance, I've heard this time and time again. A lot of people say, I just can't believe how good I feel from a very small change in diet. I was already eating most wheat meat. I just had a few plants in my diet. And after a few weeks of removing those plants, I felt astonishingly better. Not everyone says this, but enough people do that I think it's worth trying just for that because you could say, I eat broccoli and I feel totally fine, so there's no reason to remove it. But until you've actually tried it, you might not know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, And I know in the ketogenic world that they tend to say there's an adaptation phase. So you should be trying to do it for at least, what is it, about six weeks, I think. Um, yes. Do you think the same thing then for this kind of diet that you'd you'd want to wait at least six weeks um, before you try to introduce something again 
Well, I'm going to pull a bit of a middle ground <laughs> answer to that because um, most people that I've talked to don't have difficulty adapting. But I have heard of a fair minority of individuals who do say that it took them some time to adapt and that they really didn't see, start seeing benefits until several weeks had gone by. So on the one hand, changing your diet this drastically can be intimidating. And if you think you have to do it for a really long period, some, a lot of the carnivorous vets say that you've got to go six months before you can really tell the difference. And, and I understand where that's coming from. But if, if I had thought that I had to commit to a, this big a dietary change for six months in order to know whether I was going to get benefit or not, I never would have done it. Yeah. And that's why, that's why in my writings, I've said, give it 30 days. But uh -huh. yeah, it might be a little bit more. On the other hand, it might be a bit less. It was, it was two weeks when I was already at the point where I could tell that my entire life was changed. So it's very lucky in that sense. Uh -huh. Yeah, just uh, I guess that's the thing at the end of the day is we're all different. And as long as you're aware of your own body, you might start noticing, oh, whatever is particularly changing. And this is interesting. And then the longer, of course, you do something, the more you might see that change. Um, yeah, because that, that was one of my questions is, you know, with the keto, when people adapt from a standard diet to a ketogenic diet or a low carb diet, they get the low carb flu or the keto flu. And I wonder, yeah, do you think, again, so you don't know if with that adaptation, there is no sort of like adaptation that someone's going to go through when they start going through an all meat diet? If you'd asked me a few years ago, I would have said no, because that was my experience. It was just, it was easy. <laughs> but I have since then heard many people say that they were tired for a while. It was hard for them to adapt. So I, I can no longer say that that doesn't happen for anyone. Hmm. And and some of those people, it's not just that it didn't feel good and then they stopped. It didn't feel good at first and then it started feeling a lot better. Hmm. So so I don't know what makes that difference. If there's more um, withdrawal of certain things, um, cravings that were perpetuated by sweeteners, or I really I really don't know. And then something that is really helpful in the transition with the keto flu has been electrolytes, uh, salt and potassium and magnesium in particular. And I think there may be some benefit to doing that transitioning to a carnivorous diet from a ketogenic diet as well. Although I don't, I haven't been paying enough attention to that idea until recently to know if that would be a universal idea or not, but I think it can't hurt. Mm -hmm. But I guess maybe with a carnivorous diet, like what I'm experiencing with mine is that you naturally actually salt your meat for flavor. So I wonder if maybe people use a lot more salt when they eat all meat because they're using it predominantly for flavor and because they, it's just a byproduct because they're having more salt that they're actually getting more exposure to electrolytes compared to someone who is eating maybe a higher fat meal, but they're not particularly needing to salt it maybe, or they're not thinking of salting. That's a really interesting idea, especially since most carnivore experience or 
experiments specify that you should be reducing spices or not using them at all. And so you're left with salt. I personally, when, when I made my transition, I, I gave up salt too, uh, at least added salt, not sodium, obviously. But so I didn't have that. And again, I didn't have problems making that transition, but I think that that may be really relevant. Mm. It's just thought I, I, I'm thinking that when I have my rump steak, I salt the thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love just getting my salt and just throwing it all over. It just enhances the flavor. It makes it much more pleasurable. But I'm thinking, well, I use a lot more salt when I eat just meat. So, um, And it's a licensed to eat bacon. So there, there's a big sodium uptake too. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to come on to all the different meats in a bit because uh, that, that would be good. But if I can, just while I had you on the... Um, on the topic where you did bring it up with uh, women and fats um, and then protein, because I think it is true what you're saying when most women go on a diet that they, they might restrict themselves on food. And I had a low carb nutritionist, um, Emily McGuire say that where they, they tend to restrict the protein when they're on a keto diet because they're scared that it's going to do the gluconeogenesis and knock them out of ketosis. And then they're not going to get the weight loss, but then, actually need more protein and i guess here this is going to be interesting where if a female is coming in to the carnivorous world going oh i was scared of protein because it was going to knock me into this bad place of knocking my ketones down now i'm only going to eat um meat but hopefully you know as you said meat with fat so it's so this whole gluconeogenesis issue um and eating just pure meat do you um and then for, and particularly for ladies do you have any view on that Yes. Well, protein can inhibit ketosis at a certain level, but I don't think it's because the protein itself is sending some kind of signal to say, um, let's let's make more sugar. It's not directly causing gluconeogenesis. I think what's happening is that when you eat protein, you have an insulin response. The only thing that you don't really have much of an insulin response to at all is fat. Protein is going to have some and carbs a lot more. But insulin and the insulin to glucagon ratio is one of the primary regulators, as far as I understand, of whether or not you're in ketosis. So if your insulin level becomes quite high because of a lot of protein, then that could slow down your ketogenesis. And then if you don't have as many ketones, your body still needs energy. And so it's going to demand more glucose from your liver. And so in that way, yes, you might be burning more glucose in response to a higher protein diet than a lower protein diet. But I don't see it as interfering really with weight loss. In fact, if you follow Ted Naiman, he's been quite adamant about finding and showing studies where the where higher protein levels up to say 30% over 15% show superior weight loss. Um, now that's it's very controversial um, and I don't want to side too heavily on the protein wars, but I do think that protein levels are not as as much something that we should fear. Another point that comes up about protein and ketogenesis Several people have noticed that for a given level of protein on a carnivorous diet, you can get 
the same level of ketosis that you would need a lower level of protein on a merely low-carb ketogenic diet. At first, that seems like some kind of weird magic. Um, but if you think about it, if you're eating 20 grams of protein or of um, carbohydrate a day, and you take that down to like maybe two grams out of incidental carbohydrates from meat products, or, or let's just say it goes 20 grams down. Now you have about 40 grams of protein that you could increase your food supply by before you're even giving the material to make that same amount of glucose. So I don't know if that's the reason, but it does, that could be a plausible reason why you can eat more protein and have higher ketosis on a carnivorous diet than on a keto diet. It is something that people are reporting. Hmm. Yeah, I've, as, as a side note, I've been ch just checking my ketone levels every day just for fun. And I noticed when I, after, because, you know, I started 1st of January, so you've got Christmas carbs. And <laughs> I was uh, in my, my, um, my ketone measuring tool was always zero. And then there was, I actually um, think I had like a bit of a transition phase where I had a headache one day. I was, it was a stonker. It was a real bad one. And then I was fine. But um, it was after that, I noticed my ketone levels tracked up. And then now I'm always like in that level. I've always got somewhere between 0.2 to 0.4 um, or 0.1 to 0.4. I like fluctuate between that all the time now. So it's interesting for me that, yeah, I've always got ketones in my system now compared to when I started where it, it wasn't, it wasn't existent. Um, it is interesting. The yeah. other thing is if you're not eating any carbohydrates at all, then even if your glucose level is the same as it was, it's always going to be that steady gluconeogenesis glucose. So there, there isn't any of this up and down that you would get from eating the carbohydrates, even if those are a small amount. Um, yeah. And, and then it, so just helping the ladies on this too, when you were talking about the energy levels, um, that is an, uh, an important point because I've seen in the forums, like in the World Carnival Forum, there was, um, I can think of one particular lady who said she's pregnant, who's eating a carnivorous diet. And then there's probably, you know, there's going to be ladies who are going to be breastfeeding. Do you think that eating an all meat diet for women at, in those levels gives them enough energy? Because I use like breastfeeding, for example, ladies tend to be a lot more hungrier because they're, you know, they're breastfeeding and they're, getting, and they're needing more energy. So that's why they, they also, uh, I mean, I'm, my, this is what my wife's told me, you know, you end up craving carbs a bit because you just need the energy uh, when you're at that stage. But do you, I don't know if you, have you ever come across someone who is, has able just to eat only meat when they're breastfeeding or um, go through a pregnancy? Well, first, let me tell you my experiences. When I got pregnant, the my first two pregnancies, I was coming from a low-carb diet. And the third one was just uh, just after I started a carnivorous diet for the first time. And what I found was that the beginning of pregnancy, I wasn't just hungry, but I specifically craved carbs. And I think that might be because not because my body needs carbs, but because my body needs to get fat. <laughs> and that's how it knows how to do that. Um, certainly, there's, there's no reason to believe we would need carbs for pregnancy because we have evidence of societies in which that wouldn't have been plausible. Um, certain um, 
nomadic societies such as Inuit or uh, any kind of plains people, Mongolians, Dakota Indians, plant. There, there just wasn't a high level of carbohydrate that would have been available every time someone was pregnant. But in terms of getting enough food, you can always eat more meat. So there isn't really there isn't really a problem with that quantitatively. If you're willing to get those, get that energy from meat, I can I can definitely sympathize with carbohydrate cravings during pregnancy, especially during the beginning. Mm-hmm. So I didn't successfully stay low carb on my first two pregnancies, and part of it was because I have a, a genetic condition called hyperemesis gravidarum, where you you actually you're so nauseated that it can be hard to keep nutrition down. Actually, I have it much, much more mildly than other people in my family. And I was able to keep my food down. I was never hospitalized. But I, I, I tread lightly and I ate what I, what I would, whatever it would take to make me not feel sick. Um, but my third pregnancy was right after I started a zero-carb diet. And I had learned so much more about low-carb diets. There was no residual fear that this might not be the right thing for the fetus. And I really wanted, I was so excited about the results I had gotten already from a carnivorous diet that I wanted to get back to it as soon as possible. And I would say by the middle of the second trimester, I'm I'm guessing a little bit because it was a long time ago, um, I was mostly low-carb most of the time. And by the end of the pregnancy, I was zero carb some of the time, but not all the time. But then within a week of giving birth, I transitioned back to a carnivorous diet. And I've been carnivorous since. That was in November, sorry, October of 2009. And so the entire experience of breastfeeding was carnivorous. And that was the best breastfeeding experience that I had actually in terms of supply and ease. Mm -hmm. Of course, I don't know if that's because I was more used to the idea. I was more comfortable with it. The first time I was breastfeeding, I didn't know if I was doing it right. I was worried about supply and I was much more vulnerable to other people's advice and, and um, self doubt whenever things wouldn't go exactly how I expected. Whereas with the third time it was just, oh, I know that sometimes my supply will be less and sometimes it'll be more and I'm not worried about this not being right. And so I I can't exclude that as a cause, but I I, I did breastfeed better with my third child on a carnivorous diet for what it's worth. Yeah, that's interesting. And then I weaned him onto that carnivorous diet as well. So you say you, because you've got three children, don't you? Yes. And they, so they also tend to eat a more carnivorous diet, do they? Yes, well, our household's always been basically low carb with more or less of treats from one time to another time. But ever since I found the health effects of a carnivorous diet, the the food that I've served has been more carnivorous. My younger sons are more used to it than my older son, obviously, and they eat some vegetables at my house. <laughs> It's not a completely um, plant-free household, but they do definitely eat a lot more meat than I would 
think a standard household, especially in hip Boulder, Colorado, is like. And I don't insist that they eat it. I don't say you've got to eat more of your salad. I, I say you have it or don't have it as you like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, most parents are always trying, I think, trying to get kids to eat protein, you know, to sort of stabilize them too and say, please don't try only eat the quick carbs, which they they once they start, they they love them. But it's like, please eat some protein just so you stabilize. But maybe, do you notice that? I'd be interested to know, do you notice the difference with your kids because they eat so much protein? Like they, they're not so hyper? Um, I know there's going to be a bit of bias going on here too because we're all parents. We, we see our kids differently. It's hard. I mean, they are all so different from one another, even that's been really educational for me because I, I made certain conclusions about my parenting and the environment that I was bringing up my children in based on the results, you might say, of how my first child was his temperament. And then when I had the second child, the second child's temperament was so drastically different. It made me think, well, nothing that I'm doing has any effect at all. <laughs> um, but I do think that I do think that I can tell, I definitely can tell if, if we go out and say, and I say, okay, you can, you can have whatever you want and they choose something sugary or carby. It's almost like a different child. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to think any other particular topics, particularly from females. I think we've addressed the, um, the, the big ones with the reproduction cycle, but also, I did actually have a question from from a viewer on my YouTube channel asking about menstrual cycle, and um, I don't know if you've if you've ex if you experienced or you know of anyone who found that it's uh, sort of stabilized the menstrual cycle. It, you know, because uh, that's a a big part where a lot of ladies struggle with either it's irregular or it's heavy or it's painful. Um, so I guess then the kind of words that people might know, ladies might know, is like PCOS or endometriosis and those kind of things. I don't, have you, have you come across any stories where ladies have found a change in that? Because that's all hormonal too, a lot of that. Well, I haven't noticed enough to be, to have a sort of systematic answer to that. I have heard from some people who have experienced changes in the length of their cycle or stability, but they're a little bit, idiosyncratic there haven't been patterns that i've noticed or a lot of people but it might just be that people don't want to talk about it a lot mm. in terms of pcos that's an insulin resistance disease you would expect to see healing in that and and we do i don't know if it's more than on a ketogenic diet necessarily in terms of endometriosis i have endometriosis and it wasn't cured by my carnivorous diet, although the symptoms do seem to be somewhat less. Um, but I don't know. I don't know how much to attribute to the carnivorous diet. It was one of the things that I hoped that it would cure once I found out that it was helping with so many things. <laughs> and so not, not for me, not yet. Okay. Oh, well, you know, it's, it's not a cure or, or pill. <laughs> um, just try, uh, with, so also with ladies then um, co converting across to the diet, have you, 
this is probably again because everyone's so different. Do you find that some ladies actually put on weight because they're eating more meat on a carnivorous diet? Is that a possibility for some some women? It absolutely is. Um, most of the cases that I've heard of that happen in women who have a long history of calorie restriction. And I suspect that at least some of the weight gain that they're experiencing is from tissue healing, like getting denser bones and getting more muscle and just getting a stronger body. Although not all of it is from that. Some of it is actually fat gain. And that might be explainable just by the phenomenon that we we know about from from Keyes' experiment, for example, that if you if you starve someone for long enough, they just and then you give them enough food, they just become a fatter person than they were. And so there could be some of that going on. But I do know that of people who were willing to stick through that for the sake of their health and then had that weight gradually come off again. And so I don't know, if I were in that experience, if, if that had happened to me when I started a carnivorous diet and I actually gained instead of losing, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have stuck with it. <laughs> and I don't, I don't uh, necessarily blame someone for not being able to do that unless they have some kind of other health issue that's going on. Mm. But now that we have at least some precedent, like Kelly Hogan, you might be familiar with her. If you haven't read her story, she um, she gained a lot of weight when she first went on to zero carb, but now she 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 just looks like a model. She's she's got a fabulous body composition. Okay, and so what you mentioned earlier about the the carnivorous vets, the veterans would say that you have to be on the diet for six months. Maybe they're using that as reference points that. When you go through that refeeding cycle, your body needs that time to to lay down new tissues, get rid of old tissues, and there's like the recycling process going on. And that, yeah, I, I'd love. To, I'm going to research Kelly's story a bit more because that would be that would be a great one to understand a bit more and, and learn a bit more about too. She has a great story, and for many reasons, but one of them is that she was unable to have children until she went on a zero carb diet. And so it gave her back her fertility as well. Mm. Yep. So, yeah, because that's, you know, I use fertility as a, as a measure of health too. So the more fertile you are, it means theoretically you should be healthier. You're feeding your body the right signals and your body can produce the right signals and hormonal signals. So it's always a good time when you're very fertile um, yes. and you're doing something right. Um, so, I'd like to just find out a little bit more about your food intake where you, so how have you figured out like how much food to, to eat in a day, how much protein and what kind of protein do you like to eat? So, you know, beef, lamb, chicken, seafood, if you wouldn't mind just sharing some of that. Sure. It's, it's all hunger based. I don't have any kind of level of food that I'm trying to stay above or below. And over time, I, my routine has basically become a two-meal routine, and it's usually lunch and dinner. Occasionally, I'll just have one meal. Sometimes I'll have three. Sometimes I'll have breakfast. But most days, it's lunch and supper. And my go-to foods are 
well, beef is the is the mainstay. But I do eat pork. I do eat chicken and turkey. I had some wonderful duck recently. I love seafood. I find it a bit lean, but the main problem actually is probably that I live in Colorado. I think if I lived on the coast, I would probably eat a lot more seafood because it's so delicious. Even if that meant I had to drench it in butter to make it more um, fat satiating. (laughs) I eat eggs. I eat some amount of dairy. I do find that I have a sort of addictive response to dairy. Um, for example, if, I, if I'm if i eating cheese, I have cheese in the fridge, I will find myself going to the fridge repeatedly looking for cheese. And if there's no cheese, I realize I'm not actually hungry. It's just that I want more cheese. And, and that kind of response to a food is always a little bit disconcerting to me. And I think I also it also causes me to gain weight. But it doesn't interfere with my mood. So I consider it a safe food but maybe not an optimal food for me. Okay. Um, I, it's interesting you were saying about your meal timings too, because that is one thing I wanted to ask, where I've personally noticed that because I'm eating so much protein, I'm exactly the same as you were. I'm not particularly hungry for breakfast. I'm not normally a breakfast person too, but like, I, there's been quite a few days where I only feel hungry. I'm, say, hungry. I'm not even ravenous for food, but I'll, I feel like I should eat food at, say, 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And it's incredible to think like, wow, I haven't eaten since. And I eat my supper again at about with the family between 4 and 5 p.m. So my mm-hmm. my eating window is so small now. I find it in, incredible. And I, But that's also another part of this diet where I think because uh, you just feel satiated, you're actually sort of in these intermittent fasting cycles naturally. And it's all yes. because of that. It's just, and I'm not trying to fast. I'm not trying to follow any sort of protocol of like 16, eight or whatever. I'm just, I'm trying to follow my, my hunger cycles and yeah, you just don't feel so hungry and it's hard to get a lot of protein in. Like when I look at Sean, how much he can eat in a sitting, <laughs> damn, I can't, I just can't do that. You know, it's, it's probably a function of his exercise. I do notice that on weightlifting days, I, I'm a lot hungrier and I sleep more too. But I like what you said about you're you're not trying to achieve that small fasting window. And I think there's nothing wrong with trying something for an experiment, but it it feels really good when you when you find a natural rhythm that does something that we know is a healthy pattern, that kind of pulsatility of the insulin signal followed by that long postprandial period, I think is very healthy. And to know that that's that's just coming as a side effect of your diet. It's really it's really satisfying <laughs> it, in a similar way that the ketosis from a carnivorous diet is satisfying. I'm not trying to be in ketosis like you. I might wake up and have you know 0.3 or some days it, it's higher. Sometimes it's over one, but that result is pleasing because it's something that is just happening naturally as a result of the way that I'm eating. Yeah. Yeah. You're not trying to, you're not consciously trying to make these. And I, I think a part of the kind of, this is my own theory would be that because of the fasting cycles and fasting produces ketones too. So you are going to be burning your own um, fat uh, sources because of it. And it's just that it's, you're not, you're not trying to do it. It just happens because you're not hungry. So you don't eat for, for those longer periods. Um, 
Yeah. So um, that would probably be the one thing I would suggest to people who start eating this is you might notice your, your meal timings are going to alter dramatically because you're just not so hungry or you'll eat a big sitting and then you won't want to eat again for quite a while or something. Um, I, I like I'm, to tell people to let that kind of thing happen and not worry about it. Don't chastise yourself if you want breakfast. It's not You didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> just eat. Eat when you're hungry and it'll work itself out. So with your, I'm interested, with your beef, have you tried lots of different cuts of beef? Because uh, I've mm-hmm. been experimenting with tons of different, uh, you know, it's been fascinating going to the butcher and learning about meat and cuts of meat and what you can do and the prices of them too and the affordability. So. Yeah, especially as a former vegetarian, I had prided myself on being a pretty good vegetarian cook. And <laughs> the first few years of cooking meat, I was kind of hopeless. <laughs> it's just a, a totally different kind of culinary skill. What works for vegetables isn't what works for flesh. Um, yeah, I, I would eat ribeye over and over again without complaint, but I have come to appreciate many other cuts, um, not all of them as fatty as ribeye. Um, Chuck eye is a close second for fattiness and succulentness, but I, I like strip. I I even enjoy the leaner cuts if they're made into jerky and I can um, dip them into tallow that I've reserved. I I do like liver, and so I eat that from time to time. One thing that I've really wanted to try but I haven't been able to get a hold of is brain. Uh, no one will sell it to me. <laughs> okay. um, I don't – I mean, I know why. It's just scare from mad cow disease from a long time ago. But it's it's my goal. Hopefully this year I'll get to try brain. That's a good goal for the year. Okay. That, yeah, that would be an interesting experiment. You know, um, how do you cook brain and saute brain and what does it taste like? Uh, yeah, because um, that is, you know, talking about the cuts of meat here and the leanness and the fattiness, um, I, I have wondered if there is a difference between men and women on that. That I notice a lot of men tend to eat leaner cuts of meat, potentially, and ladies tend to favor the fattier cuts of meat. You know, and I've just wondered, is it again because women's physiology is a little bit more drawn to the fattier cuts of meat, potentially, that, you know, it tastes good, but it's also something that inherently they know they, they need more and that these and guys are like, nah, just give me a big lean rump meat or fillet steak or T-bone, but, you know, a little bit of marbling, but nothing as much as like a short rib, which is just oh, laid in I was going to say short ribs. That's one of my absolute favorites. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That's an interesting observation. I hadn't noticed it. I had always heretofore assumed that if anyone doesn't want the fattier cut, it's just Enculturation, pure and simple, but um, there may be more to it than that, and it may just be, yeah, it, it could be your your body, just your body's needs. And if women, women obviously are fatter than men naturally, mm-hmm. he- in a he- healthily so, and so maybe that's just a pure reflection of that. Yeah. Um, so, have you come across any? Anyone on a carnivorous diet who's predominantly seafood-based, like fish-based, have you come across? I'd because you know in the community you notice a lot of red meat, um, and it's and I've just wondered where is anyone's particularly like? I've not seen someone carnivorous just showing me like loads of salmon and tuna and mackerel and 
you know, maybe shellfish that they're eating. Uh, I just wondered, have you come across anyone who's like that in the community? No. Uh, a few times over the years, I've seen people take polls. If you had to eat just one food, what would it be? And it's almost always beef. <laughs> um, of course, we aren't limited by that, thankfully, because yeah. I like a variety. And I do love seafood, but no, I don't know anyone who's doing it. That might be a fun experiment. Try a month of seafood only with, obviously, you'd have to add add fat. Um, it's too bad that we don't have access to fat that um, Arctic coast people had, like Ulichin, Greece, or something like that. Although, to be fair, they were getting a lot of their fat from sea mammals as well, which is another thing that I've never tried. I've never tried seal or whale or any um, sea mammal. But now the short answer is no, I don't know anyone who's doing that. Okay. Yeah, I'd love to find someone. Maybe I need to go to Norway and see if there's someone on the Scandinavian or Iceland or Greenland or someone who's, who's decided to eat a carnivorous diet and yeah, they've just got predominantly fish. And so that's what they, they eat. Because that's well, why I wonder. Traditionally, hmm. that there must have been people who did that. Um, okay, I'm, I'm just thinking here, I, I know we're running on the hour now, um, but I hopefully I've, I've asked most of the important questions, particularly, I think we've covered a lot to do with the, the, the female aspect, and I think that's important because whenever it comes to diet, I, I always find there is that male-female difference, and um, and so hopefully I think we've answered a lot of those questions, and you've you've definitely highlighted a lot of good other points that come with the diet too, and and even like we've talked about fasting, um, ketone levels, and yeah, just there was loads of great topics in this. So I just want to say thank you so much for sharing that. That's you know that's been a brilliant talk, and I'm I can see myself wanting to talk to you for a long time about different. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, that was great. We we covered a lot of things. Yeah. So uh, Amber, for anyone listening on this, how can they follow you? Do you have any sort of online profiles or places that you can direct people to? I do. I am on Twitter and my handle there is Keto Carnivore. And I'm also on Facebook. I have a page called the Ketogenic Diet for Health, which is named after one of my two blogs. I have two. One which is more focused on the research behind ketogenic diets. And it's, it's very obscure topics, uh, just things that were piquing my curiosity, no kind of systematic ketosis for beginners or anything like that. But if you're interested, that's ketotic.org, K-E-T-O-T-I-C.org. And then my personal blog, which has more about meat eating and where I'm willing to go on a limb and say things that aren't necessarily supported by clinical trials, that's Empirica, where the ka is .ca, so E-M-P-I-R-I dot C-A. Okay, great. And I'll link to all of that in the show notes so people can follow you and uh, maybe if they need to, they can reach out to you for more direct questions too. Thank you. Yeah, again, thank you so much for coming on today. My pleasure. 